You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Our Global Dishonesty One of the socio-economic cancers that aids and abets the poverty and inequality just described is corruption. According to Transparency International's 2009 Corruption Perceptions Index, which is a measure of domestic public sector corruption, the vast majority of the 180 countries included score below 5 on a scale of 0, which is perceived to be highly corrupt, to 10, perceived to have low levels of corruption. Fragile, unstable states that are scarred by war and ongoing conflict linger at the bottom of the index. These are Somalia with a score of 1.1, Afghanistan at 1.3, Myanmar at 1.4, and Sudan tied with Iraq at 1.5. Highest scorers are New Zealand at 9.4, Denmark at 9.3, Singapore and Sweden tied at 9.2, and Switzerland at 9.0. Looking at business, Transparency International's 2009 Global Corruption Barometer found that over half of those polled, with more than 73,000 respondents drawn from 69 countries and territories around the world, believe that the private sector uses bribes to influence public policy, laws and regulations. At the same time, half of the respondents expressed a willingness to pay a premium to buy from corruption-free companies. The barometer also found that the poorest families continue to be punished by petty bribe demands. Across the board, low-income respondents were more likely to be met with bribe demands than high-income respondents. Furthermore, only 3 in 10 respondents believed their government's efforts to fight corruption were effective, although opinion in sub-Saharan Africa was notably more positive than in other regions. According to another of Transparency International's indexes, the 2008 Bribe Payers Index, companies based in the emerging economic giants are perceived to routinely engage in bribery when doing business abroad. For example, Russia ranked last with a score of 5.9, where 10 represents no corruption. Just below China at 6.5, Mexico 6.6 and India 6.8. At the other end of the spectrum, Belgium and Canada shared first place with a score of 8.8, while the Netherlands and Switzerland shared the third place on the index with 8.7. Transparency International estimates that bribery, cartels and other corrupt practices undermine competition and contribute to a massive loss of resources for development in all countries, especially the poorest ones. For example, between 1990 and 2005, more than 283 private international cartels cost consumers around the world an estimated 300 billion in overcharges. Awkward questions. These bewildering facts and figures leave us with many troubling questions, or at least they should do. In this book, I'm mainly concerned with those that involve business. For instance, I wrestle with the central question, are companies more a part of the problem or the solution? Is the net impact of business positive or negative? There are other questions too, 
awkward questions that cut even closer to the bone. For better or for worse, I chose corporate sustainability and responsibility as my way to make a positive difference in the world, the mark of my footprints in the sands of time. But given that CSR initiatives have increased dramatically over the same 50 years that many of the problems globally described above have been getting worse, does that mean that CSR is ineffective? It gets worse. Could the whole CSR bonanza be an unwitting accomplice to the spate of corporate crimes of recent decades? Am I quietly and unintentionally aiding and abetting our collective demise? After all, Enron was stuffed to the gills with CSR initiatives, from codes of conduct and ethics offices to corporate volunteering and community development programs. And yet, when I attended a presentation years after the Enron debacle, an insider accountant said that all the CSR programs in the world could do nothing to change the internal culture of greed that had been nurtured and rewarded over decades by the organization. Even Lehman Brothers, which I discuss in depth in the next chapter, had gotten savvy to the CSR trend. They issued annual corporate philanthropy reports and declared to their shareholders in 2007 that strong corporate citizenship is a key element of our culture. We actively leverage our intellectual capital, network of global relationships and financial strength to help address today's critical social issues. In 2007, they had an expert in socially responsible business practices join the firm as head globally of sustainability and president of the Council on Climate Change. Bizarrely, in 2008, the firm posthumously received a CSR award for a 10-year mentoring project at a local secondary school in the East End of London. I am sure all of these CSR programs had their merits, And yet, if they did nothing to prevent the company from acting like a pirate on the high seas of finance, what good were they? If CSR cannot form the bedrock of ethical corporate behavior, does it deserve to have responsibility in its title? More worryingly still, if CSR is used to legitimize businesses or practices that are at heart irresponsible, surely CSR is partly to blame for the various corporate sins that go undetected and unpunished. I'm led to a very uncomfortable conclusion. At worst, CSR, in its most primitive form, may be a smokescreen covering up systemically irresponsible behavior. At best, even the most evolved CSR practices might just be a band-aid applied to a gaping wound that is hemorrhaging the lifeblood of the economy, the society, and our planet. The Ages and Stages of CSR This book is an attempt at answering some of these awkward questions, taking a critical look at the role of business in the global crises we face, and being honest with myself and all those working in corporate sustainability and responsibility about the limits of our impacts. At the same time, it is an opportunity to glimpse into the future, to start to sketch out what a different kind of CSR, indeed a different kind of business, might look like, one that will have a greater chance of succeeding where its predecessor has failed. As intimated at the start of the chapter, 
I found it useful to view the evolution of business responsibility in terms of five overlapping periods, the ages of greed, philanthropy, marketing, management, and responsibility, each of which typically manifests a different stage of CSR, namely defensive, charitable, promotional, strategic, and systemic CSR. My contention is that companies tend to move through these ages and stages, although they may have activities in several ages and stages at once, and that we should be encouraging business to make the transition to systemic CSR in the dawning age of responsibility. If companies remain stuck in any of the first four stages, I don't believe we will turn the tide on the environmental, social and ethical crises that we face. Simply put, CSR will continue to fail. The first part of the book explores each of these ages in turn. However, let me introduce them here briefly. The age of greed is characterized by defensive CSR, in which all corporate sustainability and responsibility practices, which are typically limited, are undertaken only if and when it can be shown that shareholder value will be protected as a result. Hence, employee volunteer programs, which show evidence of improved staff motivation, commitment and productivity, are not uncommon, nor are targeted expenditures, for example on pollution controls, which are seen to fend off regulation or avoid fines and penalties. Charitable CSR in the age of philanthropy is where a company supports various social and environmental causes through donations and sponsorships, typically administered through a foundation, trust or chairman's fund, and aimed at empowering community groups or civil society organisations. Promotional CSR in the age of marketing is what happens when corporate sustainability and responsibility is seen mainly as a public relations opportunity to enhance the brand, image and reputation of the company. Promotional CSR may draw on the practices of charitable and strategic CSR and turn them into PR spin, which is often characterized as greenwash. Strategic CSR emerging from the age of management means relating CSR activities to the company's core business, like Coca-Cola's focus on water management. This is often through adherence to CSR codes and implementation of social and environmental management systems, which typically involve cycles of CSR policy development, goal and target setting, program implementation, auditing and reporting. Systemic CSR in the age of responsibility focuses its activities on identifying and tackling the root causes of our present unsustainability and irresponsibility, typically through innovating business models, revolutionizing their processes, products and services, and lobbying for progressive national and international policies. Hence, while strategic CSR is focused at the micro-level, supporting social or environmental issues that happen to align with its strategy but without necessarily changing that strategy. Systemic CSR focuses on understanding the interconnections of the macro-level system, the society and ecosystems, and changing its strategy to optimize the outcomes for this larger human and ecological system. The second part of the book focuses on how we might do that, exploring systemic CSR which I also refer to as CSR 2.0, 
and delving into each of the five principles that characterize this new approach, namely creativity, scalability, responsiveness, glocality, and circularity. The final section of the book looks at how we can make change happen at a societal, organizational, and individual level, ending with how we can all make a difference in our own unique way. We begin our examination in the wake of the global financial crisis by looking at the age of greed that precipitated the near meltdown of the world's economic system.